the Author to Author podcast series with award-winning author Pamela R. Haight. Welcome to the podcast. Dalgetty Herbal Teas produce 100% natural high-quality organic teas using only the best ingredients. Available now from all major supermarkets or please visit our website at dalgetty.co. Dalgetty Herbal Teas. Hello lovely listeners, my name is Pamela R. Haynes and I'm your host of the Author to Author podcast. I had a very busy May crossing the T's and dotting the I's of my manuscript before it becomes available for pre-order on the 30th of June 2022. I cannot wait to see both books in print. Why not follow me on Instagram at lovingtheauthor to be the first to find out the latest developments with my books and also find links to my TV and radio interviews. In this episode, I interview self-published author Dr. Marcia Morgan. Let's jump into her interview now. Hello there, Marcia. Thank you so much for joining me on the Author to Author podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm excited to interview you. And I think we should try and keep each other in check because we have similar careers. And I realise that um, people in the criminal justice field can talk using lots of acronyms. So every oh, time we use one, we should check <laughs> it because I want our listeners to be able to follow this very important um, conversation. So Marcia, thank you so much for donating two copies of your book, um, which is called The Silenced Voice. My copy that I've read over the weekend, I had to ring my girlfriends about it. I was so excited. Uh, this book is so unique in the way that it's been put together. So my copy, which I don't like to do, but I had to underline bits. <laughs> I had to fold pages over. It was like sacrilege, but definitely worthwhile um, doing because I have to say, even though it was a difficult read, it was a necessary read. So thank you so much for putting this book together. But before we dive into this book, please tell me, Marcia, where are you from in the world in terms of your heritage and where are you based now? So my parents are from Jamaica. I was born in Manchester, uh, Mossad in the UK. I currently live in East Sussex near um, a town called Lewis. Okay, I think there's a Crown Court up there and a prison that way as well, isn't there? There is indeed. Okay, so you're based in Sussex. Your parents, your family in terms of heritage are from Jamaica. If you had the opportunity to travel anywhere in the world right now, money being no object, where would you travel to? It would have to be Jamaica because that's where my father lives and that's where a lot of my family are and that's where my husband's from and that's literally my second home. And whereabouts in Jamaica would you like to be? Well, my family live all over so I guess I would want to have the freedom to be able to travel to different parishes but I guess my favourite would have to be Montego Bay. Oh, lovely, lovely. I've been to Montego Bay twice staying in Montego Bay in a place called um, Rose Hall Hilton. And then in Ocherias, um, we stayed in a hotel there as well. Fabulous, fabulous. We could do with that right now, couldn't we, with all these high storms yeah. and bad weather? Yeah, yeah. I'll join you in Jamaica then. That's fantastic. 
So tell us a little bit about your um, upbringing and the kinds of schools that you went to and the experiences you had at school. So I was raised by my maternal grandmother in Manchester. And my mother always tells me this story of when I was three years old, she decided that she wanted to move to London. And I chose to stay with my grandmother in Manchester. And I guess probably that was probably one of the first major decisions I've ever made in my whole life. But that's the story that she tells me why I ended up living with my grandmother and not moving with her. But I went to a normal primary school. I was a free school meals child. My grandmother was very active in the New Testament Church of God, um, Brooksbury, Manchester. So I grew up in church. Um, the first place I went to after leaving hospital was to my christening at church. My grandmother was very strict in we went to church. So that was a real prominent part of my life in growing up. And even now, I still go to church. I'm a Christian. I'm very involved in the church. Um, at school, it was a mixed school. So it was very ethnically diverse. And even in secondary school, um, I went to Trinity High School, which again was um, a normal comprehensive school. I was a free school middle child there as well. And it was a mixed school. But um, I do remember a teacher called Mr Gilligan, who in my year seven saying to me, you know, you can either be a follower or you can be a leader. And just that comment that he made just totally changed my mindset in regards to my education, in regards to the things that I did, in regards to the decisions that I made. Even at home, because I was um, living with my grandmother, she was quite elderly, she gave me a lot of, not responsibilities, but opportunities to grow. So, for example, she, she taught me things like never run out of food, always do extra shopping if you've got extra cash, make sure you always pay your bills before you do anything. So she taught me some really important life lessons that I then passed on to my son. But my upbringing was rich, not rich in regards to wealth, but rich in regards to love, in regards to wisdom, in regards to um, values and beliefs and, and having self-confidence in yourself. Thank you very much for that. It sounds like a mix of love there for your grandmother in terms of bringing you up. You went to three universities. I wonder if you can tell us well, which universities you went to and what qualification you gained from, from going there. So I attended, my first university was the University of Salford, where I completed a degree in complementary medicine and health sciences. And I chose to do that particular course because at the time my grandmother was chronically ill with diabetes and I was interested in understanding different forms of therapies that might help her even though she was sort of like the end stages but I was keen to sort of understand alternative therapies so I chose to do that particular qualification which was brand new at the time and um, I then went on and I, I got a bachelor's in science I then went on to do my postgraduate certificate and master's in education, leadership and management at um, the University of, at Manchester University. So um, Manchester Metropolitan University, sorry. That was my second. Um, I decided to do my PGCE because at that time I was teaching at a prison. And before I got that teaching position, I'd completed a 7307 teaching qualification which meant I was sort of at the lowest grade of the teaching scale that you possibly could be. And I said, I don't want to be at the lowest scale. So I decided to complete my postgraduate certificate in education. And then after that, I thought, actually, I want to go into management. So I decided to do a master's degree. And you can imagine if you're being told 
from primary school that you're, you're not academic, you're not going to do well, you go to secondary school and you're told you're not going to really get any GCSEs, you're not going to do A-levels, you're not going to go to university and then you're working and you're being told the same thing, oh, you've got a teaching qualification, be happy with that, be happy at the bottom of the scale and, you know, just keep teaching. I was very much like, no, I want to get into management, I want to um, continue with my qualification. So I did my um, master's and then I decided, actually, I want to do my PhD. But to be honest, one of the reasons why I did my PhD was because at the time, uh, the boyfriend that I was seeing, he said to me, well, you finished your master's now, so what's next? Why not go on to do a PhD? And then I thought, actually, I could go on to do a PhD, even though my supervisor from my master's qualification was like, no, don't bother, you, you don't need to do a PhD. But actually, no, I'm going to do a PhD because every time someone tells me I can't do something, that's always the catalyst to make me want to do it and then to be determined to find a way to do it. And in all my qualifications, there were qualifications that I wanted to do, as opposed to someone telling me that I should do those particular qualifications. Did you find then that the higher up you went in terms of your education, there were less representation in terms of having other black students or teachers or lecturers around you? Well, from um, the first time I came across a teacher of my reflection was at my primary school and that was Mr Cummins and then I never saw any black teachers until came across Mr Lewis from my and you can literally say their names because they were just so few and so Mr Lewis was my second what was interesting was that they were both men as opposed to black females when I went to university um the University of Salford there was no there was only myself and two other black women and an Asian guy that was on the whole degree course and it was a new course and it was a combined course of three different pathways and it had at least two three hundred students and out of those students was just three of us on that course doing different things so you can imagine it was it was very low there was just no other people that looked like me but I was used to that because when I went to college and I was doing my A-levels I decided to go into an FE college as opposed to a sixth form because I needed that flexibility to look after my grandmother when she wasn't well and when I was doing my A-levels, there was no other person, black person, on any of my A-level courses. But at that time, they just set up a course called Black Access, which were for mature students of African-Caribbean descent. And because of how I am, I, I talked to everybody. And I noticed this course that was going on, and I went and spoke to the teacher, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, but you're too young, because at the time I was 17, and you had to be over 21. But... I was able to negotiate for her to allow me to attend some of the modules because I just wanted that, that one, I wanted to learn about my history, but secondly, just having people that look like me in the building and spending some time with, with people who were studying because trust me, studying can be a very lonely road. And when you're there on your own, it's even worse. And just having those individuals in that, on that course, and even though I didn't get a qualification, but I, it was just being able to learn something new and being surrounded by with people that looked like me, who were older than me, who could kind of give you that advice and encouragement and sort of like say, listen, this is what you've got to expect, but you can be prepared for it. That helped me for when, then when I went to university and I found myself being the only one. And also when I went into my career and finding myself being the only one, I had their nuggets of wisdom and encouragement to kind of hold on to when you're in those valley situations. So thank you for that. Tell us, tell us how you morphed into finishing university and getting your degree and how did you end up in the prison service? That's a journey in itself. So 
when I was growing up, I grew up in Mosside, and at the time, Mosside was very notorious, and it had a reputation for gang culture and all the rest of it. And I went to a secondary school that was quite close to Mosside. It was in Hume. So a lot of the guys who were going to my school, who were older than me, joined one of the gangs. So there's two main gangs in Manchester at that time, and they joined either one. And then there were a few operations in which quite a lot of the um, guys ended up being incarcerated. At that time, I was interested in mental health. So I worked for an organisation called African Caribbean Mental Health Services. And I found when working within that particular organisation and doing my undergraduate um, degree, which focused on African Caribbean mental health within um, African Caribbean men and, and their experience with the mental health services, I found that there was two routes, in a sense, for men Um, African-Caribbean men in my community, it was either crime or it was either mental health. And and that tended to be the sort of life chances that they had. Because even growing up in um, Mossad, I remember being told, if you use your postcode, you're not going to get a job. And and it literally was like that at times. There was just no opportunities if you came from Mossad. So um, having completed my undergraduate qualification and a lot of the guys who had got incarcerated during that period, coming out of prison, I observed that some of them went back into crime and then others had mental health, so like drug-induced psychosis, schizophrenia, and there was a few who kind of left that lifestyle behind, but it was a very few numbers. And then I just thought to myself, when I spoke to a few of the guys, we're like, well, what do you expect? I haven't got any qualifications. I'm not going to get a job anyway because of where I live. So, you know, I have to survive. And then that just made me think, what is the point of prisons if someone goes into the prison institution and come out the same, if not worse? So I remember my grandmother always told me as a child, education is the key to anything. And so having that mentality, I thought, well, I've got an education and I'm going to use it in a way that I can empower African-Caribbean men who are incarcerated to be able to be more productive citizens in society. So that was the reason why I completed my teaching qualification in the first place was so that I could teach. I specialised in prison education because I wanted to be a specialist in that area. And then literally once I completed my 7307 teaching qualification, my cousin Chelsea said, you know, there's a job going at a particular prison in Manchester. So um, I applied and Funnily enough, at that time, because of the, the the thing about you can't use your postcode, and I was still living in my side then, I um, stayed at my dad's house, and he lived in Old Trafford, so I was able to apply using his address, and I got an interview, and I got the job. So it, it, it just kind of played into the fact that maybe if I'd used my home postcode of my grandmother's, then, well, actually, she died then, and I kind of was in the process of moving. But if I was still in my side, I might not have got that job. So sadly, I had to move out in order to get a job. But I got that job in the prisons and I technically I've never looked back because even though I was teaching men, I realised that just because you educate someone and you empower them, you actually can disempower them if they're unable to challenge a system. And as we know with any institutions, there's the, the structural racism and all the issues and the bureaucracy. So that's why I then went into management in prisons because I realised I'm teaching you to read and write. But then if you go on a wing and experience racism and you can't do anything to challenge it, then what's the point? It's if you're in ignorance, then you don't know what's going on. But then when you know something's wrong and the tools that are being given to you are inefficient, then you need to do something about it.
Wow. Wow. Thank you for, for a really full explanation as to how you joined the um, prison service. How long has your career been for? How long have you been working for the uh, prisons? So it's probably about 16, 18 years in total. I've worked in private prisons, public sector prisons and at HQ. Now for our listeners and for me as well, because I've been out of it for a little while, where does Her Majesty's Prisons and Probation Service sits within the Ministry of Justice. So they're one of the executive directorates of the Ministry of Justice. And you have also courts and tribunals, the Department of Courts and Tribunals, Legal Aid. I think there's four or five different executive departments within the Ministry of Justice. HMPPS, which is a combination of prisons and probation, is the largest organisation within the Ministry of Justice with over 40,000 employees. So today you are a senior manager within HMPPS, is that right? Yeah. What's your role? What's your title and, and what do you do? So my current role, I'm a senior health and social care lead. And my areas of responsibilities are um, governance, which is looking at operational governance. So looking at how health and social care services are delivered across the estate, ensuring that they are equitable in relation to the type of health and social care that will be delivered in the community. And I've been in this role for about four months. So brand new to that role. Congratulations. Is that across the whole estate, including private prisons? Yes, and also probation. Because what we want to ensure as an organisation, we recognise that in order to support someone to change their lives, you have to take a holistic approach. And in the past, you, you may be able to provide specific programs or education, but if someone's got health issues, and that can be mental health issues, drug dependencies, it doesn't matter about any type of health issues, if that's not tan- if that's not part of the whole service that you're delivering to a person, then what you tend to find is that they don't engage in the regime as well as they could. So what we are doing as an organisation, and that's why probation is included, is to ensure that there is a continuity of care. So we're working with external partners. We've got the health and social care partnership arrangement with other bodies. So um, the Department of Health, NHS, the old public health um, England, which is now UK Health Security Agency, the um, Office of Health and Inequality and Disparity. So we're working with different partners to ensure that the health and social care deliverables that we provide in prisons and those who are on probation are the same as if you were someone who lived at an address on a street, you get the same level of care and support, including social care. Yes, I mean, I worked very briefly at um, Loudoun Grange Prison in Nottingham. So I got to shadow most of the uh, senior members of staff in each department. And one manager was responsible for health care. So I got to go to uh, visit prisoners who were in hospital. So to see whether, whether, you know, we're able to support people when they're in, not only in prison, but they have healthcare needs as well. And it's, it was very interesting, um, some of the meetings that I attended in terms of trying to cut down on the waiting list that it takes for prisoners to be seen, having um, nurses and doctors and other um, health professionals visit the prison as well and have surgeries there you know, so that um, prisoners can be seen in a in a prompt um, fashion. So it's good to hear that that has been also taken up at a high, at your level. 
And I can tell you that it's working on the ground as well in my experience. So thank you very much for that. So you are a senior manager in the prison service. Tell us how hard has that journey been to get where you are today? It's been a very difficult journey. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to complete my PhD in the first place was because I needed something that would that would empower me and help me during those periods when you feel alone, when you've had a challenging day. And it's not necessarily a challenging day with the prisoners. Sometimes it could be very challenging with your colleagues. I, I completed my PhD because when you're when that, when you're working in an in an institution where you literally before you step through the gate you have to pray and just say you know what I need that strength I need I need something before I go into that that building and and put my keys on and then you go in there and then you have to have that smile and that confidence and that masquerade of strength when really inside you're actually crying it's there's been some really challenging times and why I did my PhD was because. I didn't want other people to have that same experience. And also the selfish part of me was when when I attended events with um, an organization called Respect, which was a support network for Black and Asian minority ethnic staff, when I was meeting women who'd been in the service for 10, 20 years and they were sharing their experiences, I thought if they've got through what they've gone through, because they were in the air of the times when people would literally say racist things to you and it would be fine. And I used to think, if they've got through that, then I can get through this. But I want to be able to, to develop something that people can use so that when they're working in organisations where they feel isolated and excluded and alone, they've got something to, to draw on to get that strength. But then also to help the organisation to actually recognise, understand that people who are not part of the dominant group, who are not white men or white women, have an experience that is negative because of the culture of that organisation. And it's not a case of we'll introduce a new policy, but it's actually these are people, people's lives, people's feelings, people's experiences that you need to be aware of in order to make that change, not just introduce something. And that's why I wrote that, that um, my second book, with The Silence Voice, was because I wanted people to understand on a visceral level of this is what it feels like to be an intersectional person, a black woman, working in an organisation where it is predominantly white and your voice is not heard. Yeah, I mean, I certainly relate to you talking about what you have to do to prepare yourself before you go into the workplace. And it's interesting that you're mirroring what the number of black women have said to me that their challenge wasn't the offenders. The challenge wasn't the service users. I could manage them. I could go down to a reception and manage the waiting area and tell everyone to behave and everything else in a heartbeat. But managing other people was the biggest stressor. Sometimes before you even had an opportunity to take your coat off, you had something that you had to be firefighting. I had a large remit. Um, I also had health and safety on top of that as well. And coming into the building when the electric's not working or you've got mice running through the building and you haven't had an opportunity to take your coat off before you are bombarded with issues. I used to call it trying to survive in a relentlessly stressful environment, which brings me nicely onto your book because I wish I had read it years and years ago. I wish you'd written it years and years ago because it would have helped me to sort out the madness. Make it make sense, I think, is something that a lot of people say. 
So basically you have put down the experiences of every black um, professional that I know in this book. But before we get there, tell us how you made the leap from this massive portfolio that you're holding in the prison service and also working at the university. So, well, I came across the university because when I was doing my PhD, I would attend different events because it, for me, it was really important to make black women visible. It was really, really important because even in prison research that looks at race or looks at gender, it's as though black women don't exist. We're either counted twice or we're just invisible. So I was always publicizing my work. When I did my PhD, it was, it was literally, I was telling people about it. I was publishing it on um, my social media platforms. I was just like telling people, this is my research. Any opportunity I got to attend um, conferences, I would attend them. And I attended the, I think it was a British Sociological Association conference. And that's where I met my first publisher who said, you know, I, I said, I'm interested in converting my thesis into a book. And they said, okay, send me a proposal. And I literally, once I graduated and completed my PhD, I then converted it into um, an academic book because I wanted, like I said, I didn't want something where I'm just telling individuals about experience. I wanted a tool that will educate others because I think it's really important that we as as Black women academics, and I'm just Black academics, that we are contributing to knowledge production because when I was doing my master's, and I, like I said, I specialised in prison education, when I was reading about prison occupational literature, it was all about white male prison officers. It's as though black women just did not exist. And then when I was reading um, thematic reviews, like the race relations view um, in prisons, again, it was, where are the women? Because even when I looked at the appendix, and looked at the majority of them um, participants, the majority are all black men, and you couldn't differentiate between a black woman's experience and a black male's experience, because obviously at them time, they weren't even using the term intersectionality and, and even thinking that a black woman might be different to a black man. It was just, we're just black and that's it. So it was just really important for me to educate. And when I saw an, an advert at the University of East London looking for a lecturer on the psychosocial studies to lead, I applied. And fortunately for me, obviously I went for the interview and I was successful. But one of the interview panels had read my um, book and was aware of my research. And she was like, you know, I'm really glad that you even applied. But that was an opportunity then for me then to use my own, um, read my own book as a learning tool for my students. And even that was really empowering because the University of East London is really diverse. And there was a lot of um, African-Caribbean women on my course. And they were like saying to me, you know, it's so empowering to have you teach me. And I was saying to them, you know what, it's so humbling to be able to stand here and teach you. Because if someone had said to me 20 years ago, you might be a lecturer, I would never have believed it. I would never have thought about it because I'd always been told, you, you can imagine the um, stereotypes of being raised by your maternal grandmother. So you had to deal with all those issues. And then my mother had my mother and my father had me quite young. So then it's like, oh, that child. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't the perfect child. I was rebellious. But my grandmother had that kind of drive to be able to handle my rebellion. And she used that to help me to channel it into activities and education. So then being able to teach using my own resources, it was it was just, I don't know, it was just an amazing feeling. Because I remember when I was doing my A-level studying psychology and reading about Freud, I kept thinking, 
this stuffy old white guy who hasn't got a clue about what it means to me and I've got to reference him constantly. I've got to talk about him and I don't even relate to half the stuff he's saying. Then to be able to produce something that's actually a by a black woman for black women and other people to understand what it means to have intersectional identities. It's just a humbling experience. And it, I just enjoyed that. That's 18 months, two years of lecturing. I really enjoyed it. What's the name of your first book and what course do you teach at the university? Well, I'm not lecturing at the university anymore. I did it for a, a short period of time. But the first book was Black Women Prison Employees, The Intersectionality of Gender and Race. And that is basically, I call it an easy read version of my PhD. So tell us about this latest book, The Silence Voice. Why, why write that now? So the reason I wrote The Silent Voice is because when I'd written the first book, as you can imagine, academic books are one, very expensive. And secondly, because of the language that you have to use in order to meet the validation that's required in order to to write an academic book, straight away it straight away it wasn't accessible. I wanted my mom to be able to understand the term intersectionality. I wanted her to understand what that theory meant. I also wanted her to understand what organizational psychodynamics means. Those are big terms that people don't generally understand. It's difficult to understand and it's difficult to relate to it in everyday life. The second book was my opportunity to use a different method to help people understand the theories that I used in my research. So to be honest, the second book is technically a continuation of my thesis, but I'm using poems, narrative and analysis in a simpler way to help individuals understand those theories that people think if I don't go to university, it's nothing to do with me. Because one of the things that you find as well in academia is it's like an elite group. It's a secret group of people who know all about the theories. And they're the ones who are actually affecting our everyday lives because they develop the policies. So what I wanted to do was not just write a thesis and it's in a shelf somewhere and then the everyday person doesn't understand it. I wanted the everyday person and I use my mom as the everyday person because my mom, she was in a nursing home. She never went to, she went to school, she went to um, college and then obviously went into her own career, but she's not an academic. I wanted her to be able to understand my research. I didn't want to be that sort of elite black woman that's got a PhD and then you don't understand what it's about. So that's why I wrote that book. It is so unique, Marcia. I have never read a book which combines research. So there's a few names that I recognize in there as well, like Bell Hooks, the late Bell Hooks. Um, Hind Powell Singh is in the, the book as well. You quote him. And you then mix that with stories that other women have told you about um, or prisoners have told you about or people that you've met at university have shared with you. And then you pop us with these poems. The book is so unique. It's normally a combination of one or two, but not all three. And I just love the poems that you have been able to share with us in this book. Will you be prepared to read one of the poems for us? Oh, yeah. Which one would you like me to read? Yeah, you know I've got a favourite already. <laughs> and it is called There is Something in You That Is In Me. That's all about my black sister. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So the story behind this poem was because I attended a course 
um, called Accelerate, which was a course for Black and Asian minority ethnic um, prison managers. And so obviously it was, and disabled stuff as well. And it was just enough, it was just, a, you know, the energy you get when you're in the room full of people that look like you. And then you've got facilitators like um, Shelley Hussein. Um, anyway, so we, we had these in, women, this lady came and she, she was from the private sector and she spoke to us. And part of that course, we always had to reflect. And during that reflection, I just decided to write a poem. And this was a poem that I wrote. It's called, There is Something in You That Is In Me. There is something about listening to my black sister. I cannot find the words to explain. Empowering, encouraging, enlightening. These words don't quite capture the feelings or what I want to say. There is something about seeing my black sister standing in front of me, speaking to everyone in the room, leading me somewhere. I'm not quite sure where. There is something about my black sister who stands and speaks to me. She's not white. She's not male. She looks just like me. There is something about my black sister. Her presence gives me strength. She reminds me that our trials and tribulations are not unique. We share them as a group. Our shared gender and race create a bond between the two of us. Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing the, the story behind the poem as well, because I completed Accelerate back in, that would have been 2014. So I know Shelley and I know Ian, uh, Ian Phillips. Um, he wrote one of the, uh, he, he wrote yeah. one of the reviews of your book. So it's good to see him there. I think they're from, from Berkshire Consultants and that course has really helped to put a number of black emerging leaders through their paces. And it was through that course that I did my placement at um, Loudon Grange Prison. So you see how things are beginning yeah. to come full circle. That is wonderful. How has the book been received? Well, it's had mixed responses. So from the organisation, some individuals have been very positive towards it. I mean, the first book was endorsed by the previous permanent secretary, Sir Richard Heaton. And then there were others who, um, I'm not sure if it was jealousy, ignorance, maybe a mixture of both, that why should this black woman have one complete the PhD? Because I, I know for a fact that there's been seniors who have actually said she shouldn't have done a PhD, which is crazy. Bearing in mind the organisation co-funded it, but that's a whole different story. There's been those who I've had an executive director say to me, don't use your title at work. Um, I've had another executive director say to me, you know, if you publish your PhD, it's literally going to ruin your career. So it's been a mixed response from the organisation. But then if you ever read the first book, you will understand why. That's why I look at the psychology of prisons and the fact that anything that goes against the status quo is seen as a threat that has to be destroyed. So I kind of was expecting some responses from other organisations and from other individuals. It's been a really positive response. I mean, the Silence Voice got shortlisted for the um, the Business Book Awards 2021 um, last year. Um, I got into the finals. That in itself was just amazing because to think a book made up of poetry's narrative analysis to be shortlisted for a finals in a Business Book Awards. To me, that was a huge achievement because I was never expecting it. So even that just shows the fact that it, it doesn't just um, relate to individuals, 
but it can help organisations as well. So it's been a very mixed response towards the book, towards the content. I've I've, I've been able to work with different organisations around raising awareness about intersectionality. The, the, I guess one of my biggest accomplishments in regards to the whole PhD journey and the, um, trying to make the theories accessible is before um, I'd completed my PhD, like I said, intersectionality was not well known and it wasn't used at all in the prison service. And I had conversations with those involved in data analysis and gathering around using intersectionality tools. And it took many years for them to start using an intersectionality approach, but now they're doing it. And I know they're doing it now because I was able to get the permanent secretary to one, endorse the book and then push for the use of breaking down our data, not just by race and gender, but an intersectional breakdown. And now we get data that looks at black women, black men, white men, white women. Beforehand, it was just one or the other. So it's been, there's been a mixed response. But for me, for those who have used it, want to either empower themselves, want to use it as a teaching tool. I've had emails from people from different countries saying, you know, I've, I've read your thesis, I've read one of your books, and it's it's helped me either to, I've, I've referenced it in my essays, I've referenced it in my own assignments, I'm using it as a tool just to empower me. That in itself, just it just made the whole journey worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I could see myself revisiting this book time and time again. It's very reminiscent of Slaying Your Lane, by, written yeah. by Yomi Elizabeth. One of those kind of books that makes you, actually, I experienced that tick. It's like a bingo card. Yes, <laughs> I experienced that tick, tick, tick all the way through. When you talk about microaggressions, when you talk about um, unconscious bias and, and, and also, you know, it just, you gave the, correct scenarios to go along with those examples to go along which made me think well actually when I experienced that particular incident at work I wasn't I wasn't imagining it when I turned up at university and there was only a handful of us that feeling that you get of being in the minority somebody else felt it Dr Marcia Morgan but she was also brave enough to write it down as well so that those coming up after you you know, we'll have this as a source of encouragement that if you manage to get through it all, then they can get through it all too. Um, I strongly recommend this book to young men and women at college who are about to, you know, take their options, decide what university that they want to go to. It really is a source of encouragement as well that they can get through it as well. So, you know, thank you. You know, thank you for doing that. So, you don't work at the university anymore, so um, and you've taken up this new post. What's next in terms of your your writing career? Well, now at the moment, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I've recently taken on a co-editorial role for the Prison Service Journal. So that's in itself is a whole. I can I remember reading the Prison Service Journal when I worked in my establishment. I remember quoting um, information from Prison Service Journal editions when I was doing my masters. And then I remember submitting my first prison service journal article back in 2007, being told that, no, and it was looking at race relations and the use of language. And I remember being told, oh, they'll never publish that because it's about race relations. But it got published. And then they did a review of my um, first book, 
And then they um, invited me to be part of the editorial team. And then now to actually be part of one of the editors. It, it's one of those journeys where you just think, if it wasn't for God, there's no way that would have happened. Because cause you can imagine you work for an organization who literally wanted to revoke your qualification and says, you know, what she's done is rubbish. And the reason why they had that attitude was because I didn't follow the comparative model of comparing black women to white women. And it was as though I'd committed the ultimate sin because it just focused on black women and it didn't include white women. So for that, it's like, how dare you do that? But then to be part of the prison service journal that will be educating the next, the next group of academics and being involved in that, it just shows that, you know, anything is possible. What you've just said is, I mean, it just, you know, I'm gobsmacked that I, years ago, when I did my degree, everyone that had read my dissertation felt that I had been robbed, that I should have got an A, and I actually got a B. But now you've just said that your your methodology was didn't, didn't follow the traditional sense in terms of well, what people have done before. I'm now wondering whether the focus, because the uh, dissertation was about foreign national women in prison, and mainly concentrated on black women who were drug mules. I'm wondering now, because there was no comparative research comparing black women in prison with white women in prison. It was about our stories, about what the women had told me. And I'm wondering now whether that's why I was robbed of the A and ended up with a B, because we're not following traditional norms around things we're doing our own thing and again what I like about the book is it's peppered with these beautiful poetry uh, which is not normally done sitting alongside um, the kind of research that you're doing do you make of that in regards to what I would have said to you if you told me at the time if I'd ever met you then appeal it I'd have told you to appeal it for a start because when I first applied to do my PhD I remember the organization saying to me, one, you've got a master's, you don't need a, you don't need a higher qualification for the role that you're in. So I challenged it and then I got co-funded. When I um, submitted my proposal to do my PhD to the organization, say, you know, this is something I think you'd want to get involved in, especially since you're co-funding it. They said, unless you include white women, we're not going to um, support it. I said, fine, that's okay. I will carry on doing it. I will carry on doing it because I know that we have a voice that needs to be told. I know that this research will be credible, even though they'd said to me, they basically said to me, people are not interested in black women. So if you're not going to be, if it's not comparative, it's not even worthwhile. But I didn't listen to them because I know that there is more to being a black woman than just being a statistic. So what I would have said to you should have challenged that because you probably would have got an A. And the reason why I say that is I've come across a lot of individuals who have done research or have wanted to do certain research that are that are niche or, or bespoke, and their supervisors who are generally white men most most of the time because their research because they have no understanding of of those issues they straight away say that it's not valid and then they either put people up or they mark them down and that's why I keep encouraging African Caribbean people to contribute to knowledge production. Because if I never did my research using intersectionality and organizational psychodynamics, and they're two very different theories, but if I never used those theories, then the prison service would still be treating black women as though they don't exist. We wouldn't be using intersectionality within prisons and looking at the differences between different groups. 
they would still be using the same methods that they've been using for the last 10, 20, 30 years. So what I keep saying to individuals and encourage them, get those qualifications, get those higher qualifications, publish your research where it's peer reviewed, where it's assessed. So you've got that validity because if my if my thesis hadn't gone through that process and if I had published that book without doing my thesis, then the organisation would have tried to discredit it. I have to thank Dr. Gail Lewis, who was my supervisor. And I literally went searching for her to be my supervisor. And I did the whole process the, the different way around, like I always do. So I didn't go to the university to do my PhD. I found my supervisor, sent my proposal to her and then applied to the university because the supervisor was more important than the university. Because when you're doing research that no one else has done, you need to have someone that believes in what you are doing who will encourage you to do it. Even if they don't specialise in it, they've got to believe in you. So that is really important. And that's why we need more African-Caribbean academics who are producing research, who are practitioners, so that they can then change the policies. Because if you're not in the institutions, you can't change anything. And having a thesis in a university library will not translate to changing policy. And that's why I did what I did in order to be able to, just that using intersectionality in a prison service has made a huge difference. That That's happened because I didn't just do my research and left it at the university. I then published a book that was accessible. And it certainly, it certainly is. It's taken me on a trip down memory lane. And as I said, thank you. It's an important piece of work that needs to be done. I did, still didn't fully grasp what's next for you. Because in all honesty, I don't know specifically what is next, if I'm honest. I'm involved in loads of different projects at the moment, some personal projects for myself, others where I'm supporting individuals. So, for example, I'm involved in the um, Community Innovation Hub, which is in London, which is part of the um, Mayor of London's initiative to develop relationships between the BAME community and the police force that's been led by Dr. Angela Herbert, and I'm working with her and her, her colleagues in making things happen. I'm heavily involved in my local community, so I'm a parish councillor. Again, looking at the issues around the constant overdevelopment in rural areas. So I'm involved in lots of different projects. So there isn't a specific, this is my next main thing that I'm doing. I think at the moment, it's about supporting others as well as developing myself, working on what's important to me, you know, family values. Um, I'm entering into my fifth year wedding anniversary. I want to spend that quality time with my husband because, you know, for the first how many years I've been studying and publishing. So, you know, I want to have that quality time with him. My dad's in Jamaica. My grandmother recently died. I want to have that special time with him. My son's an adult living in his own place. You know, I want, to, I want to have that balance. So it's about ensuring that, yes, I want to be involved in different projects, involving my own stuff, but having that time and space to focus on what's important, which is the personal. So that's why I don't have that. Well, my five-year plan is specifically this because there's so much other stuff that I'm focusing on at the moment. And, and I like that, you know, you don't have to have everything works how and be always reaching for the next step and the next step. I like the idea that you're pausing, appreciating what you have. And at the end of the day, it isn't all about the qualifications. It's about spending quality time with quality people. So, you know, and we all crave to have that decent work-life balance. And it seems as though you've you've been able to do that of late to refocus on what is important. So that's beautiful to hear. 
Well, I said to you earlier that we will probably be talking for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. We're coming up to nearly an hour. So I know, I know, right? So if people wanted to get hold of you or to get hold of your book, how would they do that? So I've got a website, which is drmarciamorgan.com. I'm also on all the social media platforms. So I'm on Twitter, which is marcia_t455. I'm on Instagram, which is lowercase b underscore woman underscore a. I'm also on LinkedIn, which is my name. And I'm also on Facebook, which is my name. In regards to getting copies of my book, you can either get them directly from me or from Amazon. So if you type in the title or my name on Amazon, then both my books will come up. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for spending this time with me going through your career. Um, I want to wish you all the best for your future endeavours. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It is competition time now. At the time of the recording, what job did Marcia hold at the Ministry of Justice? Taking part in the competition couldn't be easier. Direct message me with the correct answer on Instagram at lovingtheauthor or alternatively, send me a message on Facebook for your chance to win a copy of Marcia's book, The Silence Voice. Good luck and bye for now. Please join Pamela R. Haynes for another author to author podcast coming soon.